0: Singing today. While I'm thinking about it, I uh, wanted to remind you that they're out on the table right there underneath that window. There are some new books uh, sent to us by Heart Cry Mission and Methodology. Um, you can pick one of those up if you like. Uh, they're, they're free. Anything on that table out there is free for your taking. And so, uh, they were just sent to us this week, so new books for you, if you'd like to have one. Turn with me to John chapter 2, as we continue our study in John's Gospel. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill them up to the brim or fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Then the master of the feast tasted the wine, the tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The rarest bottle of wine... Ever sold was purchased by Christopher Forbes for $160,000. It was an unmarked green glass bottle with the inscription 1787 Lafitte THJ. It was thought to have been owned by Thomas Jefferson found behind a wall in Paris. Yet the world's finest wine was not made in a vineyard of France, nor was it served in the finest international restaurant. It was made and served at an unpretentious wedding in Cana of Galilee 2,000 years ago. And that wine is valued today not for its rarity... But for what it reveals about its maker, Jesus Christ. Now, the last time we looked at this passage, we had, we looked at this passage uh, that has its central focus, the first miracle that Jesus performed. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, along with his disciples, and his mother is there also, probably helping in the Wedding feast. It so happens that the wine. uh, There was some sort of obviously some sort of miscalculation. In the amount of wine needed. At this wedding. And the wine ran out. And so. Mary Jesus mother came to him. To tell him. About this most embarrassing situation. Jesus' response to her was, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally, it says, What to me and to you? Which makes very little sense to us in English. More literally for us, it might say, What do we have in common in this situation? Or why are you asking me about this? It's very much the same as other statements made in the scriptures from the Old Testament all the way through into the New Testament. And I've given you a list of scriptures there in the notes. I want to refer to a a few of them. For example, in Matthew chapter 8 verse 29, the demons cried out of the man and said, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? What to me and to you? What do we have in common? You can see it very clearly when you consider that there is no commonality between the demons and the Son of God. The same is mentioned in Mark chapter 1 verse 24. The the maniac of Gadara, the demon spoke to him and said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us before the time? Over and over, this phrase is used in Scripture, Mark 5, Luke 4, Luke 8, again and again. Many times used of the demons who spoke to the Lord, who had no commonality with Him at all. Now, the Net Bible gives a very good explanation of this idiom that is used. It's, He says... The phrase is Semitic in origin. The equivalent Hebrew expression in the Old Testament had two basic meanings. One, when a person was unjustly bothering another, the injured party could say, What to me and to you? Meaning, What have I done to you that you should treat me like this? Second, When someone was asked to get involved in a matter he felt was no business of his. He could say to the other person, what to me and to you? Meaning, that's your business. I'm not involved. How am I involved in this? And so, the options are that number one implies hostility, while option two implies mere disengagement. This is, option two is what Jesus was saying to his mother. He wasn't being irreverent to his mother or insulting. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was, he was simply saying, I'm not involved in this. I'm, I'm disengaged in this. Jesus' only concern was that he fulfill his mission. Mary must now recognize Jesus not as his as her son but as the Messiah. They are no longer on common ground as a family. The domestic relationship has now gone public and it would be it must be understood that way. She cannot presume upon her son because he is not seen as her son any longer but as the son of man come to show the realities of heaven on earth now there is a, there is at the cross a moment where Jesus says to his to Mary behold woman behold your son and certainly Jesus never distanced himself from Mary or was irreverent to her but even when he was asked uh, or told, your mother and brothers are here, he said, who are my bro- mother and brothers? These are my mother and my brothers. In other words, the relationship he has to his disciples, those that are his, is much stronger than any family relationship that he would have from this earth. So he replies, my hour has not yet come. So what is he saying? Well, the word "hour" here is not a literal sixty-minute hour as we know it, as we know it, but rather a an event, a happening in time. He is saying that he was fully conscious of what the Father was going to do. And he was in full agreement and in full obedience to the decree of God with regard to his mission on earth. His hour refers to what was to come as the glorified son of the father giving himself as a ransom for many. He uses that phrase throughout the gospels. And particularly in John's gospel. In these phrases, he is thinking of the entire scope of his messianic function. Which involved his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. He would not be distracted from the reason that he was here. For the reason that he came in the first place. Turn with me just a couple of these. I want you to see them. John 13. Notice verse 1 of John chapter 13. Jesus is, this is the night before he is arrested. Or the night of his arrest, the night before his trial and crucifixion. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew his time had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Well, what is that speaking of? It's certainly speaking of his death and burial and resurrection, But it goes further than that. It's speaking of his ascension. When he ascended back to the Father. So again the use of the hour. The word hour. Chapter 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify that the son may glorify you. He was glorified through his obedient death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. <clears throat> In John chapter 7 verse 30, It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So when Jesus says this in at this wedding in Cana, he is thinking of what is looming before him. He's just beginning his public ministry. It will be... Three plus years now before he actually comes to the place of the cross. He knew why he had come. He knew the events that would take place. The Father was always telling him what he was doing. And Jesus was always doing those things. Mary knew of his divine power. And it is possible that she was asking him... To reveal himself at this particular time at the wedding. But Jesus would only act as he was instructed. By the father through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The time for the Messiah's full glory to be revealed had not yet come. There must first be the darkness of. The cross and its suffering, and in the light of the glory of his, before the light of the glory of his victory could be revealed. The wine at the wedding was a symbol of the gladness and joy in the things that God will provide when he comes, when Christ comes in his kingdom. Turn with me to Amos chapter 9. Amos is. One of the minor prophets. So if you find Psalms and you start going backwards, you'll come to Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Amos chapter 9. This passage speaks of the days of the millennial kingdom in which Christ will reign upon the earth, seated on the throne of his father David, in Jerusalem. And of the change in the earth. And the joy and the gladness. That will be in those days. Notice what he says. Beginning verse 13. Behold the days are coming. Declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes. Him who sows the seed. In other words. Everything is going to be different. It's going gro- Everything is going to grow much faster. There will be harvest harvest. But while planting, <clears throat> lost my place. There it is. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they will rebuild the ruined cities. And inhabit them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. The blessings of the kingdom. Turn back with me just a few pages to Joel. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip. With sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shechem. Sweet wine. The rabbis would say there is no rejoicing except with wine. Such a statement in our day causes one to ponder the meaning or the understanding of what that, those sayings mean. It did not mean that there was drunkenness and carousing, but the absence of wine would throw a serious damper on this wedding feast. The provision of the Lord in this event prefigures the marriage supper in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there will be rejoicing and feasting with full provision, lacking nothing. It seems clear that Mary got the message that the Lord was trying to give to her because she did not take the from what she said, she did not take this as a sharp rebuke or as some kind of sarcastic statement. He didn't say no to her request. He just made the statement, what is this to do between us? My hour's not yet here. But there was a road which the Lord had to trod. There were events that would take place, planned and decreed by the father. And they would begin here at this wedding in Cana. So he responds to her request. And she says then to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. What a great statement. What a great statement to make. You know, I counsel with people on occasion, listen to problems, give biblical advice, and many times I will say, this is what it says, now do that. Sounds simplistic, doesn't it? No, no hidden formulas, no ten steps, no... No, uh, just do what the Lord says. And I'm convinced that if we would just simply do what the Lord says, it would solve most, if not all, of our problems. It was necessary for Mary to say this because this would seem very strange for those serving the tables, the servants who brought the wine and the the food would have all been laid out. And in, in that day, the tables would surround the room. There would be a center area that was open, and that's where the servants walked in and out. And people would have a, couches where they... Reclined, they, they would have reclined on couches and, and they, so that they were in reach of the food. They would dip in and get the food, and they would have their cups there and, and so on. So they were pretty much lying down to eat, which is kind of a strange thing for us because we usually sit up to eat. It's also strange when you think about one of the guests giving orders to the servants. There was a master of the feast. He gave the orders to the servants. It would also seem very peculiar for them to do something which on their part might seem extremely foolish. Mary knew that Jesus could do whatever he desired to do, but that he would always act within the guidelines of Of his father. You remember when he was a boy, they left him in Jerusalem and later realized he was missing and they went back. And what did he say? Did you not know that I must always be about my father's business? From a very early age, his parents learned that Jesus was doing the will of his father, his father in heaven. Jesus didn't need these servants. To supply wine for the wedding. He could have supplied all of the wine. That they they needed without their aid. But if he had done that. He would have robbed them of the privilege. And blessing of service. There is something about. Serving the Lord. And completing a task for the Lord that brings a great amount of delight to the soul. I fear that in America we are raising a generation that knows little, if anything, about serving others. We have such a self-centered society. Our children hear it. They see it in their friends. They hear it on their Televisions, they hear it on their radios and in their songs. Self centeredness is the name of the game for today. These servants would have missed the joy of being instruments of his work had he supplied the wine without them. The warning for us and the lesson is don't miss the blessings by being disobedient. With obedience comes blessing. Not ease. But blessing. You may be saying, well, I've tried to be obedient to the Lord and I have all these difficulties and I'm suffering and this and that and the other. And you're missing the point. The blessing is not external. It can be a part of it, but it's not external. The blessing is internal. The blessing is the is the human heart realizing that they have been obedient to the Lord and the blessing that He gives to us on the inside Is what we're talking about. That's why many of the happiest Christians in the world are those who are the most severely persecuted. It's because God's blessing is theirs on the inside. They're not looking to outward circumstances or situations to find their happiness or to meet their need. How many... How many of us have missed the blessings of our hearts because we are so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God we love, so prone to obey partially, which is not obedience at all? This is when Jesus adds his contribution to the wedding feast. So somewhere in the vicinity of the wedding feast, in the property of this uh, bridegroom's father, now the, the uh, bridegroom's home as well with his new wife, there were six stone water pots that were there at the feast. Empty water pots. Now, if there's if there's any symbolism at all in the number of water pots, it's in the number six. The number six is generally considered the number of man. That's why you have uh, in the Antichrist a number six six six. He is all that man represents in his fallen. Nature. The number seven is the number of completion or the number of perfection. And so the number six then was considered to be less than complete or less than perfect. These pots then could symbolize certainly the incompleteness or imperfection of the Jews' religion. Don't know if you can push it that far. Certainly interesting to think of it. <clears throat> These water pots were there, John says, for the purification rites of the Jews. And at this explanation, he says that so that his Gentile readers will understand why he even mentions the water pots and their size The Jews certainly would have understood it without any explanation. Mark chapter 7 gives us an idea of the traditions of the Jews and how they laid these traditions on the people with regard to washings and ceremonial cleansing. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Now, those of you that were here when I preached through Mark will not remember this because that was back in 02, 01, 02. If you remember it, you're doing better than, than I could do. <clears throat> Verse 1 Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were undefiled, or that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Did your mom ever say to you, go wash those dirty hands before you eat? And yet, how many times as a kid did you eat with dirty hands? When I was a boy, we lived outside. We, I mean, we were outside from the time it got light to the time it got dark. And my hands would get grimy. And I only washed them when Mom told me to. <laughs> so the disciples' hands are dirty. They saw the disciples eating with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees... Verse 3, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That's an important statement, that last one. Holding to the tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with traditions unless they become legalistic traps, which these were. Verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Sounds like America during COVID. I've never seen so much wiping, cleansing, spraying in my life. everywhere you go we've we've sanitized ourselves almost to oblivion herbert danby in his book on the mishnah writes this they were washing all the time before meals they would pour a little water over the hands elevating them slightly So the water would drip to their wrists and probably some to their elbows. And then they would rub their hands together. Then they would lower their hands and rinse them, allowing the water to run off of their fingertips. (laughs) I can remember going when my mom would say to me, did you wash your hands? And I would say, yes. And she would say, "Let me see. Go wash them again." Well, you know what I did. I just went in there and turned the water on, and and that was it. Just just enough to say that I'd gotten them under my fingertips under the water. This is just for meals. If they return from a place where they could be defiled, such as the marketplace. They went to greater extremes and many times they would take a bath. When it came to washing dishes, they really got carried away. The the latter Mishnah indicated something of the extremeness of their bent during Jesus' time. For it devoted 35 pages to the washing of vessels and other daily implements. Traditions. Traditions to trap people into a religious system thinking that those things would help them spiritually. And they did not. They were always washing. Jesus spoke of that. You remember He told the Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulchers, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside it's filthy, and you're full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside. You cleanse yourself on the outside, but inside you're rotten. And so here are these pots. They're huge. Each one holding 17 to 25 gallons of water. And there were six of them. That's 100 to 125 gallons of water. Now you know... When I, when I first read this, it didn't strike me. This, this, the amount of water did not strike me. But as I got to thinking about it, <clears throat> if, if I brought 125-gallon jugs of water and set them out up here, think of the space that would take up. Obviously, the size of the pots are equal to the enormity of Christ's gift of the wine. It wasn't a small amount. This would have been necessary for the entire wedding party because they did the ceremonial washing. Each guest, don't know how many there would have been. These parties were often large. Each guest would have water brought to them at the table. They would have their hands washed. And so everyone would do the same thing. Traditionally, the servants would pour water over the hands of the guests. And they believed that water from stone pots was purer than water from clay pots. And so it was used for ceremonial washings only. Not for consumption. No water was used for consumption. We'll get to that in a moment. But they believed if it was from a stone pot, it would be cleaner than from other vessels. And that was the purpose of the pots. But in God's design, Jesus would use them to perform his first miracle. Now let me pause for a moment just to say that what Mary did in saying to the saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you is the right thing to do. She did what all of us should do. And that is when we come into situations that are difficult. Or we come into situations that are hard, trying. We turn to the one who knows what to do. And the one who knows how to handle it best. We simply obey him. Our obedience to the Lord must be entire. That is, we must, it must cover the entire scope and range of what He tells us to do. Second, our obedience to the Lord is to be exclusive. We must obey Him rather than anyone else or above anyone else. Everyone else is excluded. <clears throat> Our obedience to the Lord must be exact. We don't, want to do, we don't want to do some of what He says. We want to do all of what He says. Something equivalent is not the same thing. Children should learn this from their parents when they're told to do something. And they think by doing something else they've done what they were told. Equivalence is not the same. The point of this so far is that Mary knew exactly, did not know exactly what Jesus would do, but she trusted him to do the right thing. Now, Joseph is probably dead by this time. He is nowhere in this scene. He would have certainly been invited to the wedding. And Mary could have very easily been accustomed to going to Joseph for things and when joseph was gone he went she went to Jesus he was after all her firstborn <clears throat> so she would have been used to asking him for things during difficult situations and we too should be we too should ask him in difficult situations we may not always understand our own difficulties but He does. He understands them all. And so she says to him, whatever he says, do it. And that's what we should say too. Whatever he says, just do it. Now, what happens next would have shocked the minds and logic of the servants because no one served water to their guests. Kind of a, almost a common thing in our time. You go to a restaurant or something, the waitress says, uh, well, what will you have to drink? And many people will simply say, oh, I'll just have water. And, and we're accustomed to that because we have decent, pure drinking water. Well, for the most part. I mean, it's treated. It won't make you sick. But in many parts of the world, if you're going to fly internationally and you're going into countries, second and third world countries, the first thing they're going to tell you is, don't drink the water. You're going to get sick if you do. Stay with bottled water or Coca-Cola or something that's been processed and purified. Not that Coca-Cola is really pure. I know, I'm starting to meddle now, right? I prefer root beer. (laughs) The act of turning water into wine would alter Jesus' life from here on in. He had lived a quiet life of obscurity in Nazareth, but now his life would be a public display and examination. This first miracle would mark the beginning of many sufferings, many forms of suffering for the Son of God. He would experience physical anguish and exhaustion on a level not known by many. He would receive the abuse of words and accusations from the vulgar crowds that dogged his steps. He would be spied on, laughed at, scorned, sought as a criminal, spied on by jealous factions, and finally arrested and condemned to death. He did it all willingly. The servants waiting on tables, on the tables, acted with 100% effort and obedience. Now, can you imagine being one of those servants? Knowing and knowing the miracle that had just taken place, could you keep quiet? Could you not tell anyone where this wine came from? No one knew but the servants. And they didn't know until the moment that it was poured, and then they knew. That it was a miracle. Someone has said the principle of obedience and increased spiritual understanding is timeless. True statement. Obedience and subsequent blessing was taught by Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Turn with me to John chapter 7 real quick. John 7. Verse 17, Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, that is, be obedient to God, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. They questioned him as to to where he got his authority in these things that he was saying. And he says, if anyone wants to do God's will, if anyone's obedient to God, they'll know that I'm telling the truth. John chapter 14, look at 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is, is obedient to them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Could somebody shut those doors back there, please? Just thank you, Sean. <clears throat> the scripture the, the scriptural principle is this Obey what you know and keep learning more. You can't obey what you don't know. But once you know it, then you are responsible to obey it. And then you learn more and you obey that. And then you learn more and you obey that. So the learning process keeps on going and the obedience on that learning process. So Jesus instructed the servants to fill the water pots and they obeyed by filling them to the brim. Now why is that little bit of information there? Filling it to the brim. Because there was it leaves no room for anything else other than the water. Nothing was added to it. Just water. These pots would have been very heavy. While they were empty they would have been heavy. But while they were filled they would have weighed as much as 200 pounds each. Now, I thought about this and I thought, this is not an easy task. He's telling the servants to fill these water pots, 25 gallons each, with water. From a a well that was probably central to the town of Canaan. So they would have had to have gone to the well... Bring water back, pour it in the pots, gone back to the well. Now, suppose you were a servant. And Jesus said, fill these pots with water. Let's say that there was such a thing as a five-gallon bucket. Here's a five-gallon bucket for each of you. I don't know how many servants there was. Fill these water pots. You've got to go down to the well You've got to fill that bucket. You've got to bring it back to the place. Pour it in the pot. Go back and fill it again. We're talking about a tremendous amount of work here. Five trips. If it was a five-gallon bucket, which they probably didn't have back in that day, that would have been five trips to the well for each pot. A lot of physical labor. Rod Mattoon writes in his commentary on John. These servants did not do as little as they could. As many to do today. They did as much as they could. If there is no brim dedication and obedience in our lives. There will be no brim blessings. I hate halfway jobs. Don't you? I used to tell my children, go out and wash the car. Make sure that you don't leave any dirt on it. I'd come out, there'd be streaks. There'd be places that they had missed. And what do you think I did? I said, wash it again. And this time don't miss anything. You see, a partial job is a partial filled water pot. Are we brim Christians? Or are we just to get by with what we consider acceptable Christians? Now, not to mention. That the water itself was not, was only used for ceremonial use. It was not used to be consumed. Water was mixed with wine for purification. And the alcohol content in the wine purified the water so that it could be consumed. And so we have the story. And I'm out of time. So we, I think we'll finish, I think we'll finish this passage next week. And then we move into the second miracle that takes place, which is a very different one and speaks of a different thing. Remember, Jesus, we're speaking of Jesus as the life. Wine was seen as life and, and, and blessing. All right, we'll stop right there. Well, God bless you. Thank you for, for being here today. Uh, we'll carry on next week with our study in John's Gospel. Uh, continue to uh, pray for those that are sick. We know we've had a lot of people out uh, of late. I don't know how the Nybergs are doing.